welcome to episode one of The Book Pod, the new fortnightly podcast that brings writers, books and readers together in one fabulous poddy community. My name is Corrie Perkin. I'm a former journalist who now owns a bookshop and I hope that you're going to enjoy our fortnightly gatherings with our guest writers and journalists and our book news and our recommendations and of course we are going to have our own book club of the airwaves but more on that later. Today we are joined in the studio by... I would suggest Book World Royalty, Australia's biggest selling author, whose novels include Big Little Lies, The Husband's Secret and Truly Madly Guilty, just to name three of them. And welcome to the book pod, Leanne Moriarty. Thank you so much. So great to have you. You've sold more than 14 million books worldwide. Uh, Seven novels have been optioned by film um, production companies, which is just extraordinary. It is. (laughs) And, uh, of course, you have the Nicola Berry children's book series, which we actually sell in the shop too. We're so excited you've dropped in today for a chat, Leanne, and we wanted to particularly discuss your new novel, Nine Perfect Strangers, which I'm happy to say we sold out of on the weekend at the bookshop. <laughs> which is very lovely for me to hear. Thank you. Well, you've been doing a lot of publicity, so the word has got about. Are you exhausted? You look oh, fabulous. Well, oh, thank you. Thank you. I thought you were about to say because you look like it. <laughs> oh, I am, but I, I'm not allowed to be because this is only the very beginning, really. So, no, I should say I'm not. I'm full of energy. So this is Australia. Do you do the same thing overseas? Yes, going- so I've got um, the UK and then... The US, uh, really, uh, and this is the easy part with my own people. I'm not tired, no. And is it a worldwide release at the same time or are they no, doing Australia first? No, Australia first. So the rest of the world, some readers in the rest of the world are a little bit cranky about that. But I'm Australian. Australians have to get priority. I'm glad to hear that. Mm. 14 million copies. I don't know whether I'm more impressed by that fact or the fact that at one point you had three books on the New York Times bestseller list. And for potties who are not familiar with the New York Times bestseller list, it really is the world's most authoritative list on um, because it involves uh, not only book sales but critiques. It, it, it covers a raft of different issues. To make it onto that list is really something. And you had three at the one time. Or am I more impressed by the fact that Big Little Lies 2, the TV series, you wrote a fair whack of that and, and, and a synopsis for Big Little Lies too, and you always had in mind Celeste's mother-in-law to be played by Meryl Streep. That's right. I'm I pretty did. impressed by I that did. too. <laughs> yeah, we, which was very exciting. I did, but I did not actually expect that they would that they would get her, but but they did. Um, it seemed like an impossible dream to me. Why Meryl Streep? The Nicole Kidman character uh, was. I, I honestly felt in the television series that the Reese, mm. Reese Witherspoon's Madeline really carried the show through. Yes. Nicole won an Emmy for her performance mm. and it really is that just slow burn of a woman in crisis and it was a very powerful role. Mm. I couldn't imagine how you would bring in her husband's mother-in-law and to think of Meryl Streep is just mm. – uh, it's a real game changer because I would have thought of somebody not like Meryl. <laughs> I would oh, have would I well, would have thought a dark-haired, menacing sort of woman. But, of course, Meryl can be many different Yes, and I think, I think they have similar cheekbones. I think it actually makes sense to have Meryl as um, Alexander Skarsgård's mother. Uh, and yet it was actually my sister because she said to me when I was trying to decide should I be involved with season two, and she said, why not write a role for your favourite actress? Just have fun with it. And I actually said, well, wouldn't it be amazing if I 
if I could get Meryl. And then when I thought about it, I thought Meryl would be wonderful. And, of course, my own mother was thrilled when I said, I'm thinking with season two I should bring in the older generation, bring in the mothers, the mothers' mothers, because where are they? Mm-hmm. Um, And we are often products of our mothers. Of course we are, of course, yeah. But Meryl has that amazing capacity to change with every movie that she's in. Yes, that's right. So it's it's going to be extraordinary. Back to the New York Times list. How did you feel at that time when you realised or were told that three of your novels were on the world's most respected and revered book list? Uh, Well, it's a surreal, strange feeling. I, I... I'm a writer, so I should be able to put it into words, but I, it was just it, – well, it didn't feel real. And I think at the time, probably at the time the three books were on the list was a time when um, I still had never reached number one here in Australia. So it always felt to me like there was a parallel universe where I was a best-selling author uh, and then back here in reality where I still sold. I always had readers, but where, um, yes, I'd never reached number one. So it was funny when I first went to the US and I I remember doing a signing there and uh, actually a bookseller said to me, um, I said, how was that? And I said, oh, that was that was amazing. And she looked at me and she said, are you not a best-selling author back home? It was like I'd accidentally given away. I was obviously too shiny-eyed and thrilled by this signing line. You weren't all tired and burnt out. No, like no, you, that's right. Another I line of wasn't all jaded. Readers. I was, oh, my goodness. Um, what are your theories why this is or was? Uh, because things have changed now. Yes. Um, I've, I don't know why it was. It was just uh, – I know that I – can always remember a girlfriend with my very first book, Three Wishes, and when she read it, she said to me, uh, I enjoyed it, but she said, I did cringe a little at the Australian place names. So she literally used the word cringe. It was the cultural cringe right there because she felt as though, I believe she felt as though in fiction, you shouldn't use Australian, you shouldn't have an Australian setting as if to be special it needs to be set somewhere else, as if there was something almost embarrassing about setting something in Australia. And But I think we've lost that now. I do think that now Australian readers say to me all the time, I love the fact that it's set in Australia. And I don't know if part of it is also being able to suspend your disbelief. Sometimes if you, I think maybe some readers think... This is obviously written by somebody local, so therefore I could do this. You know, <laughs> it's not real; it's not a story, and I understand that too because one of my favourite authors is Anne Tyler, and all her books are set in Baltimore. And I love the, I love the fact that I'm reading about a town that feels a little unfamiliar. The other night when you were speaking at the Wheeler Centre here in Melbourne, you addressed the fact of of the Australianness of your novels and how important it is. Big Little Lies, you were prepared for that one to go to California. Mm. And I think it has translated really well, having mm. read and seen um, both versions. Yes. But in other, with other uh, film deals, you have been, I gather, quite specific about, I would like this done in Australia. With the last anniversary I have, which is my second novel, because for that novel I feel that, uh, well, two reasons, the setting and the characters. So for me I've never felt that setting is really my strength uh, and the setting hasn't actually mattered all that much to me but I, I will always set all of my novels 
in Australia. So by not important, I mean I don't think I'm that good at describing landscape um, and it's the stories more about the the characters um, and which is why I think it, it could be adapted anywhere else. But the last anniversary is set on a, a fictitious island on the Hawkesbury River and when I was writing it, even I don't know how good a job I did describing it, but to me the Hawkesbury is a very Australian setting that's very important well, to the story. Well, remember Kate Grenville's The Secret River. I it's know, so that's right. It's such beautiful. a particular part of the exactly. landscape, isn't so it? It would be distressing to me to see that set anywhere else. Mm. And the other reason is the characters in that book, I, at that time I was still doing corporate work, corporate writing, and I was writing the history of the Railway and Transport Health Fund was my, one of my projects. And as a that result... That must have been fun. It was fun, actually. I, I loved writing it. I don't mm-hmm. mind a corporate history, I have no, to say. No, it was really interesting. Uh, and because I was interviewing lots of elderly ladies of um, who used to be married to railway men, and I think their stories sort of seeped into or their personalities um, probably seeped into the last anniversary. So there, there are three elderly women in the book and also I know my grandmother was still alive at the time So, uh, and I can remember asking her questions and writing things down. And so it's a particular type of Australian, an Australian of the older generation, which again Americans or any other nationality couldn't, couldn't play those roles. So I'm excited about seeing the last anniversary. They've hired an Australian writer to Sam Strauss, I believe, to write the screenplay. And when do they begin shooting? Oh, no, it's all still at the very, very I don't beginning know. Yes, stage. yes. I don't know if she's even written a single word yet. But, but they moved fast with Big Little Lies. Oh, so, they did. Yeah. Back to the fame issue, Leanne. J.K. Rowling once, uh, well, not so long ago, actually, a couple of years ago in an interview, she was reflecting upon the suddenness of her fame. And as we know, she was the single mother. She was, you know, she wrote the first Harry Potter on the cafe table. That's all old, you know, it's now folklore of, mm. of the literary world. But the question was, how did you cope with the fame? And she said, not very well at all. Mm. And she actually uh, was quite disconnected from her own self to the point where she felt that she needed to go and have some counselling and she Mm. went and saw a psychologist. I'm not sure for how long, but she said that my life was changing so suddenly it really, really helped. I wonder how did the suddenness of your fame hit you in good and bad ways? (laughs) That's really interesting to hear that. Uh, Well, first of all, my fame is a tinier, far tinier version of her, so I would suggest it's all relative. I guess, yeah. Well, I'm definitely, I'm don't. I, you're our big. You're Australia's biggest star. Look at me going. Ow. <laughs> Isn't that but, typical? Well, you know, Al Jermaine Greer, Al Nicole Kidman. I am. There's Al You're allowed to claim me. I was born here and haven't lived anywhere else. Yeah, but you know, I'm not exactly living in a castle, and I don't have the paparazzi, which I believe happened to her chasing me. And you, you live in Sydney. Which and I live in Sydney, yes. And most of the time um, my life is is perfectly normal. I, I do – I just find at the end of a tour like this where I've talked about myself too much, I don't think that's very healthy. I don't think it's very good to – as a writer – to talk about myself as a writer too much. I find that I'm too aware of myself. I'm too aware of what I'm doing. And the whole point of writing is to lose your sense of self. So that's why I've been saying uh, next year I'm not going to say a word about myself 
in public and it's really important to me. And are you like most writers, I've discussed this issue with, do you stop writing when you're doing a publicity tour? Yes, I couldn't. I could not go home and write now after this because it's just... It's all about you. Yeah, that's right. And your mental health, I agree, is just not, you're just not in the right state of mind. So that's why, you know, when people have asked, could you just do this little event or this interview when you're in the middle of writing, then I've always had to say, I I know it would only take a morning, but then I wouldn't be able to write that afternoon. I probably wouldn't have been able to write the day before. It takes a while to come down from things like that. My favourite author is Anne Tyler, and I always remember, and she, I think, rarely does interviews. Uh, and I remember reading she, something where she said, it took me so many years to recover from the last interview that I did. I understand that. And I just think what must also be awful is the writers' festival circuit as yes, well. Yes, yes. And the demands. There are so many writers' festivals. Yes, that's right. But some people, some writers love it. It's almost like they've written the book to be a writer, so to go about performing as a writer. But for me... Um, the writing part's the, the good part. One of my favourite new podcasts that I've just discovered is The High Low with Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes, two British <laughs> journalists, and they talk about all things uh, cultural-related and lots of book talk, and they were saying the other day how they develop crushes on writers so mm. easily. They develop crushes on writers, and they'll go to interview a writer or they'll go to a writer's <clears> festival, <throat> and all of a sudden they're wanting to get into their mind and become their best friend. And Dolly, I think it is, said, more and more I'm learning Whenever I cost writers I love, what I'm learning is that 99% of the time writers are very shy. (laughs) I thought you were going to say that she said um, she didn't like them in the end when she actually met them. No, she said they're exceptionally shy and introverted people and they find it mortifying that people would go over and say, I love your work. Uh, And I must say, having interviewed lots of writers over my, you know, 310 years as a journalist, I often find that they have difficulty talking about themselves and their work. Yes, I agree. I um, have difficulty talking too much about process. But I must admit, I don't have any difficulty if people want to come and say they love my work. I like that a lot. So, uh, And I wouldn't. You know, some authors take a decade to to write a book, I would miss the meeting the readers in between. So um, even though I'm saying, you know, I can't write after doing interviews, um, I do actually need the, I need the feedback. I need the, I'm an eldest child, so I'm an approval-seeking eldest child. I need somebody to say, well done. Um, But yeah, it is really interesting to me that as an author, you're expected to be the sort of person who can sit in a room for hours at a time, so obviously an introverted sort of person, then suddenly you have to change your entire personality and now be the sort of person... It's can, all about me. Yes, yes. And yeah. up on stage. Yeah, So, and it is disconcerting. I find it especially hard when I just get started tour, then I, I find it hard in the beginning. Then I get into the swing of it and I quite like it, but then after a while I don't like the fact that I like it. I'm ashamed that I like it. So I start to think, come home from an event and think, you liked that too much, you're disgusting. So then the self-loathing, by the end of it, I cannot stand, I can't stand myself. There's a very good mm. character in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you, mentioned you're, you mentioned you're the eldest. You're the, the, the eldest of five? Six, six, six yeah. Tell me about your upbringing, but particularly storytelling and books. Uh, so it was a very typical 1970s 
childhood. Where in, we, in suburban Sydney? In or? suburban Sydney, yes. So just sent out, sent out <clears throat> to go play, come back when it's dark, that sort of thing. Uh, those were the days. Those were the days. <laughs> Parents never knew know, where we were. I know, and I don't know. I'd love to bring my children up the same way, but I want to know exactly where they are. I don't know how to give them that childhood that I have. I want to hover. Um, or I'd like a little chip implanted. I don't know why we don't do that. Surely the technology's there. Well, you can give them a phone, like where are I you? Guess. Sort of. I guess. But not when they're real. They're too, <laughs> mine are too little for a phone. I'd like a little chip just implanted in them so I can track them at all times. We used to disappear for hours. I, I don't know. know what the parents were doing. I know. They I think were. my mother was playing mahjong yeah, with the girls. <laughs> that's right. They were fine. They didn't worry. Yes, my mother was always forgetting to pick us up, always, because with six children and would just be waiting. It was so funny. Um, but, yes, books were were a part of our life. I didn't realise, actually, until, you know, relatively recently how I took that for granted, that not everybody grew up with books around the place. I remember a girlfriend saying there were just no books in her house. I just assumed everybody had them. We definitely weren't an academic household at all. It was just um, there were books. So my dad, for example, his office was filled with airport thrillers, um, which I made my way through. Uh, and my grandmother had a beautiful cabinet filled with um, with lots, probably some of the classics, but more particular type of book, I think set in the 30s and the 40s, an English book. I read one, a book recently called Dear Mrs. Bird, which reminded me, set in um, London, wartime London, that reminded me of that style of book that I hadn't read for it's so long. It's almost like an Elizabeth Jane Howard or a... Yes, I think so. Yeah, and very Penelope funny. Penelope yes, Lively um, or Pen- something. Penelope or, Lively, yeah. yeah. Yes, very witty. Um, plot wasn't, I don't think plot was what mattered. Um but anyway, so yeah, there were always books, and of course, um, my mum was always taking us to the local library. So I can always, I can still see the the bookshelf where all the Mary Poppins books were that would go each week to to get them. So I was lucky. The Sydney Morning Herald did an interview, a terrific profile on you a couple of years ago. I think it was now. Mm. I can't remember. And they um, discussed this issue with your dad, Bernie, who mm. had a recollection that he was working many long hours and obviously was coming home quite tired. Yes. And the kids, six kids, you can imagine, you know, mm-hmm. read me a story, read me a story. And he said, so we do it together. I'd go in and say, you start it and I'll carry on. So I had a very similar situation Did with you? my father. Yes, he was a, he was a journalist and he loved telling stories, but yes. he loved me to tell stories. I think so he could just keep reading the Age newspaper with his <laughs> piece of toast and cigarette in the oh, morning. Really? And I'd be, o- I'd be off, you know, yes. in fairyland. Yes. Yeah. But it's, there's something about the communal storytelling, I think, in families that – and obviously it has because two of your siblings are also it authors turned out as to well. be authors, that's right. And he also um, used to sometimes commission us to write to write books for him. So he would pay a dollar or a dollar fifty to fill an exercise book with words. So he definitely – a philanthropist. <laughs> well, except he then had a roulette wheel, so he'd then play roulette against us and win back um, all the money that he'd paid us. For him, it was more about, isn't it wonderful to be paid to do what you love? That was always really important to him. He didn't care what, what we ended up doing as long as we were doing something that we that we loved. So you went into advertising and marketing um, and that became your 
uh, writing world, if you like. And it, it has been well uh, chronicled, and I won't go over all ground again, uh, that you took a, decided to take a master's course mm. and write a novel as a part mm. of your study Yes, and an achievement. When you were talking about this anecdote the other night in the Wheeler Centre, my very first thought was, how did you combine the master's degree and the full-time work and the thinking of a novel that eventually became your big project, which eventually became Three Wishes? It's uh, a lot to juggle. Oh, well, I was, uh, I was freelancing at the time, so I feel when I look back on that time that it wasn't just it actually feels like a wonderful time because I was so happy to be writing the book. Uh, and so, yeah, I had all my freelance projects going. But, you know, I, I didn't have kids. Was I, I wasn't, was I single? No, I wasn't single. But to me, it felt like I had all the time in the world when I look back. Then I, I was supporting myself, but it, it doesn't feel like that was hard. It feels harder now. With, ch- uh, with children, yes, do you mean, yes. and commitment? I don't know. Maybe it was harder than I, than I recall. But you didn't have to. You didn't have to finish the book to finish your masters. Um, you only had to do thirty thousand words, uh, and I was just enjoying it so much. And I did a hundred thousand words um, over two over two years, and now I write over a year. Well, I hope it was that, just fun. I hope that tutor at Macquarie University is <laughs> feeling very proud. Yes, they should. <laughs> they should feel proud, and also the people in the group at, at Macquarie were so supportive so that was all part of it. The other night you were you mentioned a few times your husband and mm. it was often in relation to a funny line or a funny moment. Yes. And uh but it also um had me thinking about the role of him in your life. Mm. Obviously not just as a husband and mm. the father mm. of your two kids. Mm. I suppose in a way I had a sense that he keeps you grounded. Not that you wouldn't normally be grounded <laughs> but but, you know, to have somebody who's your touchstone, I yes, guess, yes. and who has a healthy perspective on everything yes. that's happening, that's the impression that I had. Yeah, what which role is a very, very accurate um, What role impression. does he play in your – what's his name? Adam. Right. Um, so he's a stay-at-home dad now, um, and yes, he definitely, he definitely keeps me grounded, and so I'm, I'm very lucky. But, he, but he, yes, he's not, he's not part of the world of um, – Publishing. Leanne, we talked earlier about Australia being a bit slower to catch on to the Leanne Moriarty buzz that was happening mm. internationally. And uh, Fiona Inglis, who actually has been a visitor to our shop a couple of times, uh, your wonderful agent, she is a wonderful agent. I'm yes. saying that on your behalf because I she think is. she's such a clever, clever yes. person of Curtis Brown. And uh, she said in an interview... Um, that she pointed out that you've sold into more territories than any other client in the 49 years of Curtis Brown Australia and said it's hard to imagine that discussions between parents in a Sydney beachside primary school playground could translate successfully into Hungarian or Thai or Brazilian or Swedish, but it seems in Leanne's hands they do. Why is this? Well, I think it's just, I think it must be that the experience of parenting is Universal. I don't know if I'm doing anything that special in that regard. I think just if you're living in an urban world, is it just that we we all share the same concerns and fears? It's extraordinary to me too. I wouldn't have expected that. And maybe it's 
different enough that people enjoy the they actually enjoy the Australian setting in the same way as I was saying that I enjoy Being and Tyler's books. Yeah. Yes, and I enjoy books set in other places. So maybe it feels different enough that they enjoy reading about kookaburras and that sort of thing, uh, but they can also relate enough so it doesn't feel so foreign uh, that they can't understand the story. I think that's absolutely right. There's a common feeling and all your characters, I mean, Nine Perfect Strangers, for example, there are nine key characters as well as um, the tenth one being Masha who owns the resort. You can yes. talk about that in a minute and give us the synopsis. But all the nine characters, I felt that there was I had a connection in some way with all of them. Well, thank you. Good. That's, well, that's what I that's and, what I wanted. And so if I lived in Stockholm, I would have the same sort of connection. So I you have an so. extraordinary capacity to just find a, a common in, let's say, ordinary people, extraordinary things. Mm. And all of us are like that, really. We've all had some backstory or some drama or we have some idiosyncrasy. Yeah, of course we do, which, yes, which is what I just find so interesting about about people. So, yes, I guess each time I take a character, it's just looking for their humanity, looking for what I relate to in each character, which I think is what actors do too. Now I've had my little Hollywood connection. I think about that more, that they look for something so that they can play the the role. They look for something that they personally relate to. Um, When the gang who made Big Little Lies, the television, the HBO series, when they were preparing, did mm, did they come to you or did you have discussions with them about... Madeline I definitely, or Celeste I definitely or? did with Nicole about Celeste. So it was really interesting to me how hard all of them, um, but I guess because Nicole comes to Australia, how hard they work at preparing for a role. As I say, I probably hadn't thought about it much before. I thought there was just, you know, an ability you have and that you just walk on and put on a voice. Um, it's obviously so much more, so much more preparation before that first day on set. So give us the synopsis of Nine Perfect Strangers, your new novel that came out in September. Yes. Uh, So it's about nine strangers, obviously, who go to a health resort. They've signed up for a 10-day transformation retreat. So they're going to give up caffeine and dairy and sugar and alcohol, and they're also going to give up their phones or their digital devices. Uh, and they're hoping that by the end of 10 days they'll be completely transformed. They're assuming that they're just there for a little bit of light fasting and hot stone massages and maybe some uh, meditation, but it turns out to be a rather different experience than what they signed up for. They're quite naughty because they sneak in. Grog bottles and <laughs> not, potato chips. Yes, <laughs> not not all of them, but some of the naughty ones do too. Yes, <laughs> I think I would do that if I was going to one of those resorts. Uh, and tell us about the spa owner. Yes, so she was inspired, firstly, by when I was doing my research. I was looking up TripAdvisor reviews, which for health resorts, which were provided a wealth of information, and there were stories about one particular resort where they kept talking about the owner of the resort. In fact, there were multiple stories like that at different resorts where they would talk either fondly or um, with some trepidation about the person who ran the resort. So there were so many odd characters. So I knew that the person who ran the resort had to be somebody strange uh, and charismatic because often it seems like they are quite charismatic people who 
run these places. But I often think, not that I've ever been to a health resort, but I always think of them, oh, it's like the Radisson, you know, there's a group, there's a corporate Mm. overview. But in fact, they're probably deeply personal and they follow particular philosophies, as we see in your... Yes, I think so, especially the small small ones. (laughs) Have you been to one? Yes, I haven't been to that many. I didn't suffer that much for my art, I'm afraid to say. And I should have gone to more of the crazier ones. Uh, But I just went to a lovely health resort for five days, which did provide me with a little bit of material. But mostly I wrote there and enjoyed myself. It was lovely. It was really (laughs) lovely. Good research. Yes, that's right. Uh, But I did give up coffee and I did get up very, very early. So I'm proud of myself for doing that. The uh, head of the resort, I originally had that character as a man, um, but then I, somebody had at a charity auction, she had bidded for the rights to have her name as to have her name used for a character in one of my books. So it was a Starlight Children's Foundation event. So I knew I had to use her name somewhere in the book. And originally I was thinking it would just be a minor character somewhere. But then I was thinking about that name and I thought, why don't I use her name, which is Maria Demachenko. I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, but obviously a Russian name, otherwise known as Masha or Masha. And that just by taking that name, that a whole character appeared. appeared from. So I'm very grateful to I her for that, that. name. Mm-hmm. Do you mind your friends or, or people you meet often? Yes. Oh, oh, I mind them terribly, yes. <laughs> so, so I mind anybody I meet for, for anything I can get, yes. Yes, there's probably nothing left in all my poor friends. I've taken everything they've got to give or they're prepared to give. I'm sure they don't mind you being the bowerbird, especially if the nice qualities come. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's a hard thing, though. You can't. It's not good to have too many friends who are writers because um, they'll be telling you a story and I'll be thinking, I want it, and then I think, damn it, they're a writer themselves, so they'll use it themselves. <laughs> Nine Perfect Strangers has been purchased or optioned or whatever the correct Hollywood <clears throat> terminology is by uh, Nicole Kidman and her mm-hmm. group. There's been a bit of a discussion on Twitter and things, which role in the book is she going to take? Uh, I can certainly see her as Masha, although in the book I do feel Masha's an older character, but mm. she certainly has that equine quality about yes. her. She's that, the same age. They're the same age. Are they? So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it will be Masha. Yes, that's the, the perfect role for her. And I know she'd do an amazing job because this is a character who is simultaneously narcissistic but at the same time deeply insecure and has so much, yes, has so much vanity but, but has a tragic past and so is a, so many contradictions that I know Nicole will have the ability to convey both, you know, by a single facial expression. So I can't wait to see it. I was also interested the other night when you were talking about when you give away your story to uh, a group of producers, directors and actors, your feeling of, is it still mine or is it still, is it now somebody else's? And Mm. whether you feel territorial or not, or sad, or is it like a child that grows up off you go, you know, kiss out the door, 21. How, <laughs> how do you feel when they move into another life form that you have not a lot to do with? It, it is a strange feeling, but I enjoy the process just because, well, particularly, well, it's only happened once, but with Big Little Lies, they did such a wonderful job of keeping me involved and making me feel part of it without actually having to do anything. So it was just a pleasure from start to finish, the actual process. But the watching of it is a strange 
it's a strange feeling and I don't quite know how to describe it. Um, there's pleasure and I guess some pride in hearing some of your lines from the book, you know, having world-class movie stars say your dialogue is amazing. But at the same time, at the same time, I almost enjoyed some of the subplots that were completely new that weren't in the book at all. I have to admit, I enjoyed watching those more than the than the other parts. You don't think, damn, I should have written that myself. <laughs> uh, oh, there might have been. No, there might have been some parts. I do remember I thought the outfit that they have for Madeline at the trivia night uh, scene was probably what Madeline would have worn. So that, the wardrobe person, whoever dressed her for that scene, I think they got it right. They did better than me. <laughs> and what's the next step for you after you've finished the Australian and international tour for this book? Uh, back to the study. Back to the study, yes. Back for a rest and looking for new ideas now. Yep. Starting to mine my friends, as you as you say. I need new friends. <laughs> I'm sure we'd all love to be one. <laughs> we have um, some a couple of listener questions. So this is our very first podcast for the book Pod, Leon. So I had to actually turn to a few friends Did who you? are devotees okay. of you and yes. yours and ask them for their questions. So they're pretending – they're not pretending yep. to be listeners. They will be listening. They will be but listeners. They're, they're, they are now. <laughs> you can bet. So the first one comes from my co-host on Don't mm. Shoot the Messenger, journalist Caroline Wilson, who is a, definitely a devotee. And she was interested in sibling rivalry with Jacqueline and Nicola, your mm. two sisters who are writers. Uh, and she says, does it exist between you and your talented siblings? Yes. Well, the answer to that question is it definitely does in regard to family anecdotes. So we all get very cross with each other if we uh, find that somebody's used something that we would have thought was up for grabs. And if uh, somebody tells a story at a dinner or something, then we're immediately saying, that's mine. Or if my mother calls and she starts telling me something, then I say, before you go any further, you, we need to say, this is my story. Do not even tell Jackie or Nicola this story. Um, so yes, there's a lot of rivalry in that regard, but not otherwise. We are each other's biggest supporters and fans. That's wonderful. But Christmas lunch... When the stories when are the stories, are you yes. all the three of you there? Yes, notes? writing notes. Well, all you have to do is say it. Once you've said it, then that's then that's that. How complicated for the rest <laughs> it, of the it, it is. That's right. One of the other siblings. This funny thing happened to me the other day. Okay, it's off the record, yeah, you that's three. Right. It is. It is exactly like that. <laughs> So Megan from Port Ferry in Victoria would like to ask, Leanne, have you ever run into any trouble or awkward moments using stories or characters from real life? There are some things where they're nothing to do with your real life, but then afterwards you can understand why people might think that they are. I had a character in my in one of my books, a man have he had four sisters and he called his sisters the flakes, the you know, flaky sisters. And my father does have four sisters sisters and he could quite they're quite flaky he could call them the flakes but he doesn't and I just but I wasn't thinking of him in any ways but it's just afterwards that so what, you start, the, the aunt said you're the out aunts, of the world no aunt. the, no the aunts didn't but I just afterwards thought that you know when you start to read it with fresh eyes because when you're writing the story you're just caught up in the story and then you sort of step out and think oh is are they going to think that no none of them ever ever said anything. And our third question is from Nikki in Watsonia and Nikki, Nikki would like to know your capacity to create humour, pathos and characters and place them in intersecting complex stories seems endless. 
Where do you find the inspiration and do you ever worry the ideas will dry up? So maybe we'll focus on the second part of that question because you kind of answered the first with the inspiration. Do you ever worry that the ideas will dry up? Yes. Yes, sometimes I get a little panicky but not for long because if you – I guess the only thing I worry about is – I've got the tiny seed of an idea for something at the moment, but I know that I know where it's come from, created by news stories. But I know everybody's reading those news stories, so I feel like these particular news stories that are going around at the moment that lots of fiction authors would be thinking of similar themes. So that's you you think about that. But we thought um, about we did think about that with nine eleven back in two thousand and one. Yes. We thought there was going to be a, a raft of novels that came out in that subsequent period dealing a, a, with that big event. Yes. And there, there were so few and far between. Yeah. So I'm not going to say what this particular idea is and we'll we'll see. See what yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. We now have our six quick questions, Leanne. So this is uh, an element that is very popular on our Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast. The operative word being quick, but of course, Carol and I usually linger on for about 10 minutes on each question. (laughs) So I'm going to shoot six at you if you're ready. Yep. Number one, who was your favourite book character when you were a little girl? Uh, Definitely Mary Poppins um, because she was such a – I love the fact that she was so – Vain. So it's interesting, actually, that I do have this character, Musher, in Nine Perfect Strangers, who has that vanity. So maybe I was inspired by Mary Poppins. I love the I love the fact that she was so pretty and vain, um, but also loving but cranky. I loved all those contradictions. The P.L. Travers books of Mary Poppins mm. are so far and above the mm. movie. Mm. Oh yes, and yes. they're timeless. I still yes. sell them in the bookshop. Do you? Yeah, yeah they're I beautiful. And who are your three favourite authors? You've mentioned Anne Tyler. Are there another couple you'd put in there? Yes, I don't like only having three, but if uh, I will say Anne Tyler, um, Kate Atkinson and Maggie O'Farrell. I would Mm. agree with that choice. What is your favourite way to de-stress or chill out? Uh, Please say a glass of wine because then we're in the (laughs) sisterhood. A glass of wine, chocolate, a book and a hot bath. All those things can be done together um, (laughs) and there's nothing better. And are you in a book club? No. Have you no. ever been in a book club? I was in a book club. I got upset, I remember, at the time. I uh, enjoyed it. I remember, remember getting upset because I wanted to talk about – I wanted to talk about we need to talk about Kevin. Okay. And somebody else said, as a mother, I don't think we – I can read that book. And I wasn't a mother at the time. I remember the poor girl I, – I got upset. And then the poor girl got upset because she didn't mean to – upset me um, and that, that was the end of the she was a lovely girl but I didn't want to be told oh you're not sensitive enough as uh, I'm, I'm very aware of that now that saying to people you're, you don't have a special sensitivity because you're not a mother and I think it would have been a good discussion. It's a great book for book club and yeah. look I'll give you the tip if you're looking for any character uh, traits particularly awkward and difficult moments, join a book club. Book club, they're there, aren't they? (laughs) Along with the wine and the chocolate. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Houses and outfits in in the Big Little Lies series are all pretty amazing. Mm. And I wondered whether you had a favourite outfit or house or both. Oh, I guess Renata's um, house is an amazing house and I had fun with that in my ideas for season two. Well, probably Madeline's, as um, I said earlier, her outfit for the trivia night. 
And the final question, J.K. Rowling always had a yearning to write detective novels and then eventually she did under the name Robert Galbraith. Is there a genre or a style of book that you would secretly like to one day write? I might one day write young adult books. My, um, but it's really that's my sister Jacqueline's area, and she's an award-winning young adult author. But um, perhaps I have a secret um, hankering to. I have an idea for a young adult series. I don't know if I'll if I'll ever do it, but it's there. Well, we look forward to that. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you very much in your busy schedule to call into the book pod. Our first guest. Oh, my pleasure. It's such an honour to be the first guest. It's a great thrill. Thank you. Uh, And we celebrate the arrival of Nine Perfect Strangers. As I said, we did sell out at the bookshop uh, on the weekend, but thankfully a whole batch of them arrived today. And in fact, I've brought some into the studio today. So we're going to sign a few. And if any of you would like to purchase a copy of Nine Perfect Strangers, you can follow the links in our podcast. And guess what? They will have Leanne Moriarty's signature there. The book is thirty two ninety nine, published by Pam McMillan. We think it's going to be a hit. It's a perfect time of year because, dare I say, the summer holidays are coming, Leanne, and mm. we all have time to sit on a banana lounge. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> it does. Or, con- or conversely, go to a really weird health getaway. Resort, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Our thanks to Leanne Moriarty. What a talent. Aren't we proud of her as Australians, as we talked about? We're claiming her. But her new novel, Nine Perfect Strangers, Potties, is really worth the effort. And we are selling copies via the links in the show notes for the book pod. But we do have one copy to give away as a special treat to the very first person who emails us at feedback at thebookpod.com.au. So all we need you to say is just in one sentence why you loved our very first book pod and you will receive the copy. I mentioned before that we are starting our own book club and this is a very exciting initiative. Carol and I have been talking about doing this on Don't Shoot the Messenger for eons and eons. So I'm really happy that we're now doing this and every month we will be reading as a group. The first book we are doing, everyone, is Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. Camilla Shamsi is a British writer. She just recently won the Women's Prize for Fiction for this book, Home Fire. I thoroughly recommend it, and I think the themes and issues will really spark off some great debate. What we're hoping that you will do in order to participate is let us know your thoughts on this book. And there are a couple of ways you can do that. One is through our Facebook page, Don't Shoot the Messenger. There will be links there that you can leave us a message what your thoughts on the book, whether you loved it or hated it, or, as we said before, feedback at thebookpod.com.au, or you can leave a voicemail. So all you do is go on your phone and press the voice recorder app on your phone and leave us a little message. Try and keep it to a minute or so, and we will play some of those messages when we have our book club. So it's a care and share, all-in community thing. So we hope you'll be part of that, and then we'll play that episode probably in November, I think. So you've got a couple of months to read. So get to and buy Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. Thanks, everyone, for joining the book pod, episode one, Behind Us. That's so exciting. And we hope that you'll join us for our next one, which will be with journalist Laura Tingle, my pin-up girl and the chief political correspondent for 7.30. Laura has just completed a quarterly essay, which is called Follow the Leader, Democracy and the Rise of the Strongman. And I think it's going to be a really fantastic discussion with Laura. So if you have any questions for Laura, don't forget you can email us and let us know what you would like us to ask her on your behalf. Thanks very much and happy reading.